Welcome to Archiving AK, a podcast of the Archives and Special Collections at the UAA APU Consortium Library in Anchorage, Alaska. We're here to talk about what we do, what our researchers are up to, and to give you a closer look at the world of archives. This is Arlene. When we were thinking about what we might do for this December, though we had a couple of interview episodes nearly ready to go, we thought that since recently something major had happened, we should postpone those others and focus on recent events. So I'll start. About six years ago, as we were coming up on the 50th anniversary of the 1964 Alaska earthquake that did such vast damage to South Central and Southwest Alaska, and points beyond, I knew we were going to be facing an increase of requests for materials related to the 1964 earthquake. In conversations with other archivists in the area, we decided to create a guide to materials held in archives statewide related to the 1964 earthquake. I managed to get grant funding from the Alaska State Library and the Institute for Museum and Library Services to do that, and to digitize, catalog, and place online as many of the photographs in our holdings related to the quake as we could. That ended up being close to 1,500 photographs that I and our project archivists selected, digitized, cataloged, and uploaded over the course of the next year or so. One of the things that happened as a result of that project was that I got in the habit of asking people I knew who'd lived through the 64 quake about their earthquake stories, and I heard a lot of them, mostly from folks who had been children at the time, but the memories were quite vivid even if they didn't always have a lot of context for what had happened to them. I was gentle about it. For many people, this was a horribly traumatic event, and you don't want to just blunder in. So I was careful about the way I asked the question and made sure that anybody I was talking to understood that I'd back off immediately and change the subject if they didn't want to talk about it. Then one day I happened across one of our retired librarians, who was a lifelong Alaska resident, and realized that unlike most of the rest of my colleagues who had been children at the time, she would have at least been a young adult, if not an adult, when the earthquake happened. So her story might even be more compelling, because it would be more than vague childhood memories. So I asked her about her earthquake story, and got the most disgusted look from her in return. It wasn't exactly a don't-go-there look, more of an annoyed one. I started to back off, and she started talking. It turned out that my guesstimate of her age wasn't far off. She was college age at the time of the quake. But she'd been away at college in March 1964, and so she hadn't experienced it. And that summer when she came home from college, it kind of made her a pariah in social settings. The conversation would always seem to turn to, where were you when? And when people found out she hadn't been there, the group would kind of reform, excluding her. While any transplant to Alaska gets used to that sort of thing, oh, you haven't lived here long for the first 20 or so years that they live here, it was not a common occurrence for a lifelong Alaskan. And that's why she gave me the look she gave me nearly 50 years later, and that feeling of rejection exclusion was one she still remembered very strongly. That's a lot of background to my 2018 earthquake story. Because at 8.29 a.m. Alaska Standard Time, Friday, November 30th, I was in Atlantic Standard Time, 12.29 p.m. I was on vacation in Florida visiting friends. We'd done some shopping and we were thinking about what we wanted to make for lunch. The first news I got about the quake was a phone call from Veronica about a half hour later letting me know it was pretty bad. 
Within a half hour after that, the photographs started trickling in by text. And of course, my social media feed was blowing up, as was my phone with text from the neighbors who wanted to go into my apartment to turn off the gas and water in case there was a leak. I'm a bit of a control freak. Okay, that's an understatement. I'm a lot of a control freak, especially when it comes to my job. I wanted to get home. I knew the archives had suffered some damage, courtesy of a co-worker who'd been in the building when the quake happened and taken some photos for us, and I had no clue what my apartment looked like. So I called Alaska Airlines, nobody even knowing at that point if the Anchorage airport would be open soon or days later, and they put me on that afternoon's flight out of Orlando to Seattle with a connection going into Anchorage. I figured that even getting to Seattle would raise my chances of getting into Anchorage. So I drove back to Orlando in my pretty and fun bright yellow Camaro convertible, regretfully returned it to the rental agency, and headed home. By about 4 a.m. on Saturday morning, I was in my very cold and waterless apartment, cuddling with my 15-year-old cat, napping and waiting for any sort of news about getting back into the library building, and waiting for a humane hour to try and figure out which neighbor had turned off my heat and water so they could turn it back on. Courtesy of social media, I didn't have to deal with a lot of are-you-okay questions from family and friends outside of Alaska, since most of them knew I'd been in Florida. The family members who don't use social media jumped on my parents' phone, so mom and dad updated all of them. But over the course of Saturday, as I was following social media and talking to friends, I realized I was that person. I was that person without an earthquake story. It didn't matter that I've lived in Alaska and Anchorage for 16 years now, many more than many of the people I know. I didn't live through the quake. I did untold hours of cleanup at work. I lost so much sleep. I had to deal with freaked out pets. I went through so many aftershocks. But no, I wasn't here at the time of the big one, so it doesn't count. You know, that's okay, really. Telling people you were tunneling around sunny Florida with a top-down and convertible sports car when one of the biggest natural disasters to hit Anchorage in decades happened. Well, even I can see there's zero room for sympathy there. So that's my non-earthquake earthquake story. Let me turn this over to somebody who has a real one. Hello, this is Gwen. I grew up in the Midwest, where we don't have earthquakes, and that has left me with kind of a blind spot when it comes to them. The first earthquake I experienced in Alaska, I was sitting in my office. I heard Arlene call from the reference desk, Gwen, are you okay? And I had no idea what she was talking about. I got up and went over to the door of my office and peeked out. And only then did I feel the ground start to shake and hear the glass of the windows rattling. Even after that first one, whenever I felt an earthquake, I always assumed it was a truck going by or the HVAC unit at work rather than the earth's tectonic plates scraping together. Of course, I have seen photographs of the aftermath of the 1964 earthquake here in the archives, and I know just how destructive they can be. But never having experienced earthquakes before, I have more of a casual attitude toward them than you might expect. On the morning of November 30th, I had gotten up later than I would have wanted to, as usual. I was rushing to get ready. I took a shower, put my pajamas back on, and went upstairs to make breakfast. I was making toast, and... I remember my cat jumping in fear as the toast popped up. 
Looking back, it seems like a little bit of foreshadowing of what was to come. As I began buttering my toast, I started hearing the windows rattle in my house. And even then, I just stood there buttering my toast. As the rattling continued and the floor began to shake, my partner Jordan exclaimed, we need to get out of here. So we ran down the stairs and on the way down, he dropped his plate of peanut butter toast and that broke. And then we finally made it to the door and ran out onto our porch. Shortly after the shaking stopped, I went back inside, not knowing how bad the earthquake had been, fully expecting to go into work that day. And I continued getting ready, getting dressed, blow drying my hair until I got the call from Veronica telling me not to come in just yet. I figured I would wait until just before 10 to go into work, so I took my time continuing to get ready. At some point, I decided it might be a good idea to call Arlene and check in. So I did, and she told me basically the same thing, just wait as long as possible to go in. Then 20 minutes later, we got the email alert that campus had closed. It was at this point that I realized just how serious the earthquake was. I began looking at news stories about it and saw pictures of the damaged roads and realized that I was going to have a long weekend. I spent the rest of the morning cleaning up the few glasses that had fallen and the broken plate and the contents of a bottle of laundry detergent that had fallen off a shelf and exploded. The rest of the weekend, I went about my business as usual, waiting for the all-clear to be let back into the library. That waiting was punctuated by dozens of aftershocks. I may not have been able to instantly recognize an earthquake when I felt one, but I do now. Hello, this is Veronica. I'm from the Northeast, where if we get earthquakes, they are small enough that we don't usually feel them. The first earthquake I ever felt was when I lived in Boston, and there was one that was about a three to 3.5 maybe. And it was all over the news and all anyone could talk about. But I didn't really experience one until I moved here. And for me, they just sort of became a part of living here, like the long winters and the long, beautiful summer days. And I also have become pretty good at hearing them before I feel them. On November 30th, I had to make a couple of personal phone calls before coming into work that day, so I was running a little later than I'd attended. I was getting dressed when I first heard and then felt the initial jolts. My first thought was, oh, just another earthquake. It began to shake harder, and I ran into my living room just as the power went out. That's when I knew it wasn't one of our normal earthquakes. The sound of it was tremendous. I ran towards the front door of my house by the sounds that the building was making. I didn't think it could withstand much more shaking. I could hear glass rattling and things falling to the floor in my kitchen. I couldn't find my door handle since I had no power. And then I was thinking, well, I can't run outside without a shirt on. It's cold. And then thoughts of the 1964 earthquake ran through my head. But I've seen enough photos and read enough accounts to know this wasn't as bad as that. The 64 earthquake was so strong that people couldn't walk, and I could. But by the time I grabbed my coat and found the door handle, the earthquake stopped. I immediately called my dad in New York to tell him that I was fine and to tell my mom that I was fine and that they're going to hear this on the news. About 10 minutes later, as I was standing outside talking to my neighbors, we heard the sirens of multiple emergency vehicles. Since we lost power in my neighborhood, My neighbors were using their car radio to get any information they could about the earthquake, and they were relaying it back to me. 
I spent much of the morning texting with friends in Alaska, asking if they were all right, and texting with friends from outside Alaska who were asking me if I was. I called Arlene and told her that we had a bad one. I also called a couple of co-workers who I knew were in the building and asked if they could check our space and to send me photographs so I could forward them to Arlene. In my house, I only lost one jar of sesame seeds and some baking soda which fell out of my spice cabinet. I have swept and vacuumed my place at least twice a week since then, and I am still finding sesame seeds. I am just thankful that for me, that's the worst of it. So that's our individual stories of our experiences, or in my case, non-experience, related to the November 30th earthquake here in South Central Alaska. Earthquakes aren't exactly an unknown for Alaskan archives. The ring of fire, while producing gorgeous scenery, also means a shaky underfooting a lot of the time. But it is one of the things we have to deal with as we do archival work here in Alaska. We were lucky with this one in so many ways. The magnitude was big, but nowhere near the 1964 size. Our amazing facilities guy was watching out for us and immediately started looking for leaks. Our amazing computer support guy got into the space immediately and started letting us know what kind of damage we were facing. And I was able to get back into the space in just over a day after the quake happened and start mitigating the worst of the damage. So now we're going to switch from individual stories to discussion. What did we learn? What things will we be doing differently next time? What help do we need? And so on. First up, what did we learn? I'll start by saying that I have a much better idea now of how hard it is to have lines of communication running and how frustrating it is to feel like I should be hearing information and am not. How did you guys feel about that? I agree that it was yeah. frustrating. Like, yeah, it was frustrating not to know when we we would be let back in the building mm -hmm. or, you know, what needed to be done. Mm -hmm. And since none of us were here when it happened, mm -hmm. we had no clue what to expect or what was going on. Yeah. So we relied on other people to tell us, and but they didn't notice things that we noticed later mm -hmm. right. or that stuff that was water damaged right next to the stuff that they pulled off the shelf that was, right. but other things that they didn't notice. Um, yeah, well, they wouldn't know our space. Right, they wouldn't know where to look. It's not their fault at all. No. Um, but yeah, that was it was just a little frustrating. I mean, I know I was kind of at a distance. And <laughs> calling people was just not great because you weren't necessarily getting through on the lines. But, you know, even texting people to say, hey, what's going on? I, I just didn't. And you can never trust, like, the national media at that point because the first couple of hours after anything like this happens... It gets blown so out of proportion mm -hmm. or just misreported just because, you know, people are showing tiny little spots of it from where they're at, mm -hmm. that it doesn't necessarily add up. So it was, I wasn't even sure the university would be closed for a while there. I mean, it was a while till that yeah. email came out or text came out. Yeah, I think I covered that in my part, but I, I like fully expected to go into work that day. Yeah. I kept getting ready. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, we had that seven a few years ago, and the worst that happened was we lost the one wall of rare books that they right. just fell off. The right. shelving fell, and then we had some empty boxes fall out in the fall off the shelves in the vault. So I wasn't expecting all of those boxes on that one row to yeah. have fallen like that. Right. I will say that was kind of a shock to me. Yeah, that was a lot. That we had like almost every box on the first and second shelves on that one whole wall fell off. Because I'm not even sure in that one a few years back, there were a lot of books and journals off the shelves downstairs. 
no. in the library. I, I mean, were. I think we got the worst of it on that one. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that we've learned is the need for a different shelving uh, <laughs> yes. structure in the rare books room, at least for the oversized materials. Right. right. And I've placed a request for it, but, you know, it's expensive. Mm-hmm. And we learned that last time, actually. Yes. Like, <laughs> but this was, this was, I mean, this was almost half the oversized rail yeah. rare that was on the floor. And we did have um, one thing break. It was an acetate recording. Mm-hmm. And that actually shattered. Mm-hmm. And that one is going to be it can't be replaced. There's no way we can purchase a new copy of it. So we have to get it digitized if we want to save it. And the cost of that, it's close to two grand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That alone. Mm-hmm. So thankfully there wasn't more destroyed. Mm-hmm. That would be difficult to replace. So here's one of the elephants in the room for me in terms of lessons learned or maybe lessons we have to fix yet. Is And I think it's one of the reasons why we're so super lucky the damage wasn't worse than it was. Um, the whole issue of disaster preparedness and recovery plans. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were really lucky there wasn't more water damage because most disasters result in a ton of water damage. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that really wasn't something we had to deal with. I, so far as I know, there is no formal disaster plan for the library. Mm-hmm. We all are trained to deal with this, so we kind of have... A mental checklist. We haven't written one down, certainly, but we have a mental checklist of what we know we have to do. So that's okay. I, it's not great. It wouldn't help mm-hmm. anybody else if mm-hmm. we weren't able to respond. So we probably should get that written down. But I don't know if I even have a sense of the university having a facilities disaster recovery plan. Or they must. If they do, it's not well publicized. Yeah, I haven't gone looking. Yeah, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) But But you'd think they would have come out with something after the earthquake publicizing (coughs) it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you you have to, if there is one, how how easy is it to find? Mm -hmm. It's not like it's handed to you when you do your orientation amongst the many other things they're telling you about the Mm -hmm. university. So that might be something that's a bit of us and a bit of a systemic problem. Right. I don't know. Regarding damage, just for informational sake, um, I had to come up with an estimate for the university for time and money spent repairing the damage in our space. This doesn't include the time we all spent reshelving books and journals for the library collection, but within the archives and rare books collection, replacing dented or broken boxes, dealing with the water damage we had, and so on. And our total for the archives and rare books collection was just under $5,000 for stabilizing shipping digitizing that acetate recording, um, replacement costs and shipping for about 66 boxes and 200 folders in the personnel time. Mm-hmm. That's that's not, I mean, we don't have a big budget for the archives. Mm-hmm. The personnel time basically gets absorbed, but that was other stuff we didn't do that week. Yeah. You guys were really quick on those boxes. I don't know how you got them all picked up and replaced that quickly, but you did. I was honestly, I'm impressed with, how well the boxes held up. I mm-hmm. I was surprised at how few of them actually had to be replaced out of the ones that fell. Yeah, I had one where the side was ripped on it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was kind of a surprise. So I don't know how that one hit. And there was a bunch where the stuff had fallen out, mm-hmm. but a lot of it you could just scoop right back into the box. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a huge mess. Um, there was stuff that did fall out of the folders, but again, that was 
I mean, it just like kind of spread out in order, so you could just go swoop <laughs> right back in. It was all scrapbook pages <laughs> with plastic covering, so you really could just they slide just it yeah. right back into the folder. Um, so that was pretty easy. And then, well, I guess that's an argument for why can we keep things in boxes? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, those little those Hollander boxes are great. <laughs> If you have an earthquake. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the clamshells help keep things in. The yeah. clamshell lid that mm-hmm. doesn't pop off. But, like, even just the the non-clamshells, you know, the cubic footers. Right. I mean, those really protected our stuff. And then having everything in the folders, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if the folders took the brunt of the damage, if it had fallen out, none of our documents were ruined, but we had to replace how many folders from the vault from yeah. the stuff right. that fell that didn't get wet. Right. Um, so they held up. The folders really protected the documents as well. So I think that's a really good argument for <laughs> foldering. <laughs> <laughs> and it kept everything in order. The stuff that that's true. fell out, a lot of the stuff, like the, the folders fell, but a lot of the stuff stayed in the folders. Right. So the folders really protected everything. So what would you do differently, aside from desperately wanting compact shelving for the vault? I would make sure all of our folders are numbered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There were some collections that did not have folder numbers on them. Luckily, they had um, a label, like a description of what was in the folder on the folder. And we have a finding aid so we could find where they went in the box. That's tedious, though. Right. But we did that because it's not in order. So, But you know what? It didn't take us that long to do. And I was really grateful that you had made a list of the audio recordings in Genie Chance because it would have been impossible to put them back in order if I hadn't. And I did that like three months ago. (laughs) (laughs) To apply for a grant to get them digitized. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So it's really random because, you know, six months earlier we wouldn't have had that list. Serendipitous. It was. But I mean, that. Kind of explains why we do description too. Mm-hmm. Also, making sure that everything is in archival boxes if we can, because we saw those single-walled non-archival boxes and how damaged they were. Right. Mm-hmm. Like one of them fell on top of one of our Hollander boxes and folded around <laughs> the Hollander box. I mean, it looked like an L. <laughs> so that was damaged, but the Hollander box was fine. So and that can, was a that that was something we were storing in there that was going to be reboxed. It just hadn't been mm-hmm. yet. Yeah. Oh. So yeah, I think that's a good argument to make sure if you can, definitely rebox everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because those boxes really protected our material. Yeah. Even though they're expensive and charge a lot in shipping. Oh <laughs> <I, laughs> um, yeah, I mean that's the case, isn't it? Yeah. Because I think the estimate I got on boxes was I don't know. 750 and the shipping was nearly that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the shipping was And that was, was for 66 box, boxes. Yeah. I mean, I, that's just like, wow, that's, a, you know, that's. Mm-hmm. They're pricey. Mm-hmm. They're pricey. They're very pricey. They're averaging out at over $10 a box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was kind of funny because I know on Instagram afterward, we got some suggestions of things we can do, especially from our California colleagues. And one of them showed us a picture of all their stacks that had bungee cords in front of the shelves so that if they had another quake, the boxes wouldn't come off. And I just thought, but I know us. 
Yeah. We would get tired of moving those bungee cords and just never rehook them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I worry about that. Maybe for some of the lesser used collections that, you know, don't get pulled very often, but and ADA accessibility. <laughs> yeah, well, there is that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not easy to do that. No. Like I physically wouldn't be able to do it with my right arm. Yeah. So well, that and lips on the shelves was the other thing mm -hmm. they were talking about. Was a little bit of a lip up in front, but that again, it really difficult. The the shelves would have the to boxes be, off. The they shelves would be have to be taller. Yeah, so mm -hmm. I don't know that that would work real well either. Mm -hmm. So it was just it's great suggestions, but I just don't know how practical they would be over the long term for us. Mm -hmm. Anything else? I think that given the challenges of communication and not being able to be let in the building for a few days we took care of everything pretty quickly mm -hmm. I think so I, there might have been a couple of things like I used to occasionally log into my computer at work from home mm -hmm. and I could access all my files yeah yeah. Via that. And I, I let that lie. I don't even know what my IP address is anymore to do that. Not that I couldn't do it. Um, it may even be with the last redo of my computer. I, I didn't download that program. But having distance access to a few things, because even having access to shelf lists at a distance, not a paper copy, but something I could have, because we knew what rows had gone down because mm -hmm. of the people who have mm -hmm. been in the building. And mm -hmm. I could have gotten started on the list to create a, what might have been affected. Mm -hmm. at least got it narrowed down to that and then maybe done some okay which are the collections we need to make sure survived first mm -hmm. what's higher priority and that was just something we couldn't do until we got physically back in the building well it also because of how the boxes fell right it would have been incredibly hard to pick out individual collections yeah. from that. They were all on top of each other mm -hmm. all the yeah, but we would have known what was on what shelves right that's true so there are some things like that we could mm -hmm. have possibly done. Yeah. So that's something I was thinking about. And have more come down. Yeah. Having distance access to the shelf list would have been good. Yeah. And I think starting on either ends of the... Mm -hmm. And meeting that in the middle a great idea. works really well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when, we, when Veronica and I um, worked on picking up that that first row, mm -hmm. uh, I started at the front of the vault and she started at the back and we just worked our way down the row <laughs> yep. from either end. Tunneling <laughs> through. There were some parts that we couldn't get to or I couldn't get to in my section because we had left one of our ladders there. Yeah. Um, and it was holding some boxes up and if it I was, remember Yeah, right. so we had to go in from a, we couldn't move it because all the boxes would have fallen down and some of them were like, the, the ladder was holding the stuff in the boxes, mm -hmm. so we had to go around from the other side and get it. Um, but that was fine, too. It's an argument to be made for not having a really long rows of boxes without some <laughs> occasional aisles going in. Yeah. yeah. Even yeah. though at the aisle points, that's where they tended to spill out more. But that, you know, that was easy to take care of, and then right. I just had to, like, move things around to get my feet in there at one point, <laughs> and then just start going. But, yeah, that... That is an excellent point to be made to make sure that you have aisle entries too periodically yeah. because if we had moved that ladder, there's no like the stuff just would have fallen mm -hmm. out. It was really for, and we could only have gotten to it from the back to lift it so that nothing had fallen out of that box. Right, it was just a matter of the angle, which would have been a mess. Right. <laughs> so. Well, and I was even on Saturday when I came in after I took tons and tons of photos 
and I grabbed a couple more boxes that I realized were wet, and I still didn't get them all because you found more than on Sunday or Monday. Um, I was attempting to push back boxes I could reach from the aisle I couldn't really get into because there were a lot of boxes that were hanging. Mm-hmm. And that just looked dangerous. <laughs> Plus, if we had another substantial aftershock, they might have come down. And I was mm-hmm. trying to, well, maybe we can fix that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But getting to some of them, because I couldn't walk in sections. So there were some that I just had to leave hanging. Mm-hmm. But even with that, I think I took our, I took the extender for our lamb's old duster and was pushing boxes back in from mm-hmm. a distance, which I'm grateful nobody got video of. Because they probably <laughs> wouldn't have been laughing at me. But it was like, I... You know, it really made me kind of want to buy one of those handled pickup things that you use for picking up garbage when you go on touch it with your hands, just to have the distance pushing ability. Yeah. I was like, hey, you know, that actually might come in handy. Yeah. But I know this is already something that we don't typically do, although we had, as Arlene mentioned, some um, materials that we were storing. Mm-hmm and we're going to move and rebox later. Um, but if you're in an earthquake prone area, don't don't store anything on the top no. of your shelves. <laughs> yeah. Um because that was most of what came down. Well, and that's you know, and was, kind of frightening because when I took over as head of this department, which was a few years after, after we'd moved into the building, we had used the top mm-hmm. yeah. as storage. Uh, for boxes Mm -hmm. and so one of the things I did within the first couple of years even though I practically wiped out a bunch of student workers in the process (laughs) was we moved we shifted everything Mm -hmm. so there were only the stuff that was being stored temporarily and a couple of bigger collections Mm -hmm. at the back that I knew were going to be downsized Mm -hmm. and most of those came down too off the off the top Mm -hmm. off the top of the shelving in those areas, but we got almost all of that down several years ago. I can't even imagine what this would have been like if we would have, if Mm -hmm. things would have been set up exactly the way they were then. I know space is kind of at a premium in most places and it it can be really tempting to just add more on top, but (laughs) I think this really underscores the importance of not doing that. Especially if a leak happens. To be clear, for people who are listening, this is all audio cassettes and tapes that was stored on top. It wasn't documents and paper and folders. It was audio tapes. Yeah. So... And they were mostly in cases, so they yeah. actually had some extra protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And none of that was damaged. Although those boxes damaged our boxes and some <laughs> <laughs> dented some of ours, but right. Right. <laughs> nothing was damaged. So, yeah. yeah. So I think we actually came through. This. And it was kind of funny because, you know, initially there's this, this outpouring of support from your colleagues. And then we got done with... I mean, we let it sit for a while because we concentrated on the public spaces, mm-hmm. the building and the library stacks before we went back because it wasn't getting, ours wasn't going to get any worse. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, people kept asking us, well, what can we do? And it was like, well, I mean, how do you, how do you get, I, I could, we couldn't even really let a volunteer in our vault not knowing if it was truly mm-hmm. safe back there. Mm-hmm. Plus the time you'd spend going over with them how to put the folders back in the box and mm-hmm. the stuff back in the folders You've already mm-hmm. done it. I mean, it, there just wasn't quite enough yeah. to make I it mean, worthwhile. For me, it was helpful to have somebody there to look at the finding aid, 
Right. And read off the folder number, the folder labels in order to put stuff. Like, it was nice to have that extra help because yeah. it went a lot faster right. with her help. Um, and then also, when Kevin went back there, he is a taller man. <laughs> so he was able to reach in ways that I wouldn't have been able to reach mm. or Gwen either because yeah. um, we're both kind of short. So And I'm not real tall. Yeah, and his, you know, he has a good wingspan, so he was <laughs> able to <laughs> yeah. pick stuff up. Um, so that was helpful. It and, was, yeah. yeah. I was really glad to have the help of our student worker. Um, she wasn't actually in the vault picking stuff up, but as I, as I was picking stuff up, I was able to hand things that were in damaged boxes off to her and have her rebox. Yeah. And I think it went a lot more quickly that way. I think that really sped things up. And in some instances, we kind of needed three hands. Yeah. Instead mm-hmm. of the yeah. two. Yeah, <laughs> so is, that was nice. This would have been terrible for one person, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was nice to have the another person to help lift or hold things in place. So one person lifted the box and the other one had their hand on the folders to make sure they didn't fall out. That was pretty Right, or spill too. even further. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, I, you know, it's interesting because we did get a few offers of help of, can we come in and help you out? And for the most part, we weren't able to take people up on that, mm-hmm. which is, kind of makes me sad because <laughs> I feel like if people volunteer to help us, we should take them up on it. But I think one of the nicest offers we got was, was that about a week later, we got an email from one of our colleagues up at the UAF Archives who said, we feel really bad that we weren't able to come down and help. Can we buy you lunch? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like, oh my goodness, that was the sweetest thing. I just wasn't expecting that. Mm-hmm. It was just like, wow, we do have a really congenial crew of archivists and librarians mm-hmm. in this state. And we got a lot of offers for help and museum people mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. I know Juno sent a bunch of museum people up to help survey with museums in the area and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Any other lessons? Anything we want to do differently next time? Start coming to work at 8 so we're actually here when this sort of thing happens. <laughs> yeah. Too bad it's not predictable, right? Some, You know, I was going to be here that early that day, too, but I didn't make like a phone call that took too long. And uh, <laughs> I was probably two minutes from leaving when it happened. Yeah. So. I think we got off really, really lucky with this one. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we mostly picked up. We still have some of the oversized rare that's it's it's stacked. It's but it's not on shelving because I am worried about aftershocks and I don't really feel like picking them up yet another time. Well, those shelves are just gonna fall again anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's so, I mean that's the thing. They fell a couple years ago. They fell this time. They're just gonna fall. Yeah. And how many times can a book violently fall off a shelf before right. it? <laughs> I mean, if I have to and we can't get that other shelving, I guess we're gonna have to look at maybe sticking them back in the. Mm-hmm. stack so they can lie flat on lower shelves again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I prefer not to do that. I don't really want them in the vault, but yeah, it just mm-hmm. makes them harder to retrieve for people, but uh, mm-hmm. we might have to. We'll see. Mm-hmm. We lost a lot of box lids, though. We did. We lost more box lids than boxes. No, I didn't. What what happened there? Did they just, just break? The, yeah, yeah. The, the corners broke. Okay. As they, as the force came off the Shelf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it broke lot, the the fronts of the box lids. A lot of the lids came off too. I was mm-hmm. kind of surprised with that, but the boxes were fine. Like some of the boxes were just sitting there. Um but yeah, some of the a lot of the lids, the corners broke. 
Well, the good news is some shipment we had a while back, they sent us too many lids, so we had plenty of extras. We had a double shipment of lids, so it's like they knew. Yeah. Who knew? Uh-oh. We better pay closer attention to that next time. Uh-oh. So What's if you're happen? in an earthquake-prone area, have extra lids, because they seem to get more damage than part. boxes. They're the weak point. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I yeah. guess I hadn't realized that. We went through yeah. a lot of lids that day. Okay. Yeah. Well, that should be mean we're not storing so many extra ones floating around. So yeah, it was probably like almost every box had to be at least in my section had to have a new lid. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I had more cubic footers in mine, and you had a lot of the. I had a lot of the smaller gray ones. Yeah. And the gray ones protect uh, documents from getting wet. That's true. Mm-hmm. They tend to be more water resistant. Mm-hmm. I was pretty impressed with that, actually. I. I wouldn't have thought about that to be honest. That never well, they do my seem mind. to be kind of have a coating on. They them, do, so they yeah. Shiny cardboard. Yeah. And the other, the, the other just yeah. looks like cardboard. Yeah. And the boxes were soaked, but nothing inside was. Yeah, which is amazing. I had a few photos that were feeling a little damp, but mm-hmm. not to the point that you know a few hours in a freezer wouldn't take care of it. Yeah, and it did. Mm-hmm. So. I'm just proud of the way that we handled it and the way that we got through it pretty quickly. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. It was not as bad as what I thought when I first saw the photos. I really expected it to take a lot longer. Uh-huh. I did, too. I really did. I might add that archives are not dusty. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> that sound you just heard was Veronica's memory of the library shelves with books on them. <laughs> they are dirty. <laughs> they need to be dusted. <laughs> We don't even dust the ball. It doesn't have a huge airflow in there, to be fair. No, but, it's not really dusty. but, but yeah, our stacks are not dusty. The next time somebody says dusty archives, I'm gonna be like, no, dusty library. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I was sneezing for a few days over that. Well, I still, you can still hear it. I still, yeah. my allergies are still running high. Yep. <laughs> it's almost a month later now. Any bright conclusions I should do? It was fun. <laughs> I actually, I actually really liked. Hey, it's resume fodder. <laughs> you know, I'm really glad though that I think being here, like if I was in the research room and it happened, and hearing that lantern fall and rattle oh. around probably would terrify me. Right. I know. Like that sound because I hate the sound like of glass hitting each other, mm-hmm. hitting against each other during the earthquake. And, like, every aftershock after you and we, hear it. Yeah. And we have so much glass just in the research room. And it makes that kind of cracking noise, the frames, every mm-hmm. time we have a quake. So, like, that on top of, like, the lantern falling <laughs> over and going... Even though there was no damage in the research room, really. No, That lantern's... It's noisy. I'm just glad none of us was in that row. Oh, no kidding. Pulling boxes when it happened. I think every time I go into that row now, I'm like... <laughs> it's like cover your head and run. It's kind of the same feeling I have when I get, I end up stuck at a light under an overpass. Oh, yeah. I have horrible oh, moments of yeah, I don't want to be here right now. I get like, stuck on top of a bridge and yes. you feel it shake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But you know what I'm mad about though? Those stupid map drawers. You know how hard they are to open? You know how many of those opened? Yeah. <laughs> like, they are not easy to open. Well, they're not supposed to open more than one at a time, too. It's like a fail-safe measure. Yet some of those cabinets have more than one drawer open. There was open. like six open on the one. Yeah. Like, do you know how hard those are to open? Well, I to, like, and they're yank. not bolted to the wall. So no. if that if one of the upper ones would have done that, they could have easily come down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a little scary. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh Maybe we should tape the map cabinets. <laughs> Put bungee cords on the <laughs> <laughs> We don't get into that often, so maybe. I don't know. That's it for this month's episode of Archiving a K. Next month, I'll be interviewing Zane Treesh of the Anchorage Museum about his work as a librarian and archivist and the collections there at the Library and Archives at the Anchorage Museum. Thanks for joining us.